five, four, three, two, one. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. Today on SpaceQ, I'll be talking with Dan Goldberg, CEO of Telesat. Telesat is a leading global satellite operator based in Ottawa. Dan's been the chief executive at Telesat since 2006. Before working at Telesat, he had been CEO at SES New Skies. And for those with long memories, Dan was also Associate General Counsel and Vice President of Government and Regulatory Affairs at PanamSat. Telesat is charting a new course in developing a low-Earth orbit constellation of satellites, 117 of them plus spares. For a company with 15 active geostationary satellites in orbit, funding, designing, building, and deploying over 100 more, albeit much smaller satellites, is a challenging prospect. Telesat isn't the only company vying to develop a small satellite constellation in low-Earth orbit. Competitors include OneWeb. They appear to be making good progress, having recently brought online their factory production in France and a new manufacturing facility in Florida being built. Telesat, though, has at least one advantage over its competitors. Notably, in the next two months, they're going to launch their first two prototype satellites. I spoke to Dan about the Constellation, the Space Advisory Board, and Canada's Space Future, their two new geo-satellites to be launched next year, Telstar Vantage 18 and 19, and what Telstar 19 will mean for Canada's north. Welcome, Dan, to the SpaceQ podcast. Thank you very much. All right, so I want to start with uh, uh, the Space Advisory Board as a topic. Uh, You participated in the first Space Advisory Board consultation in Ottawa on April 21st. What was your takeaway from that particular consultation? I heard some voices were raised. Well, uh, Telesat has been an active uh, participant whenever government takes a a look at what they want to do in the in the policy arena on uh, on space matters, and and we certainly participated uh, when Minister Baines kicked off uh, his latest effort, the government's uh, latest effort in terms of updating their space policy, and and we were at that. April meeting. Um, I thought it was a good exchange. I thought that uh, the members of the Space Advisory Board uh, are uh, individuals who understand our sector and have a good grounding in in the sorts of things that we focus on. I think the government has a a very earnest desire to understand. I, I think they regard space as important, and I think that they recognize that, that there are things uh, the government can do to make sure that we're as successful as we can be as an industry. Um, so I thought it was a, a good exchange. Uh, whether voices were raised, nah, I'm, I'm not sure about that. I think, and Mark, you've been in, involved in the sector for a very long time, and you know that uh, uh, people in our sector are, are, are passionate about about <laughs> about what they do. That's for sure. Um, we are here at Telesat as well. So, no, I thought it was an excellent exchange, and I thought that the report that the uh, Space Advisory Board ultimately uh, put together and, and shared with the minister 
uh, was a very good one. So, uh, you, about the report, uh, once it was rele- released, uh, Telesat issued a press release, and in that press release it said, uh, Telesat is also pleased to see an emphasis on procuring, to the extent possible, space services from Canadian industry, rather than acquiring, launching, and operating space systems, to meet government needs. Why is this important to Telesat and the industry? Well, I mean, you know, you need to remember, and, and, and I know you do, uh, where where we are in the value chain. So we're a satellite services provider, and we've observed a trend, boy, going back at least a decade now, where I think governments are increasingly relying on uh, satellite, really commercial satellite service providers to um, provide certain critical service services for government rather than government going out uh, and procuring uh, satellites and other kind of space-based resources that are uh, very bespoke projects. And we all know whether it's in Canada or south of the border or in Europe, uh, these space programs unfortunately have a, a, a long and, and pretty bad history of oftentimes being significantly over budget, significantly delayed, uh, lacking in some of the functionality that uh, the government originally thought that they were procuring. Uh, At the end of the day, uh, it's the taxpayer who uh, is ultimately on the hook for all of those things. And so I think governments increasingly are coming to the conclusion that a a better way to manage all of those programmatic risks and a a better way to ensure that they get the services that they need, really the capability that they need uh, in a a way that represents a, a good value uh, from the taxpayer's perspective, is to procure it uh, that that capability as a service from a globally leading company that uh, provides those types of services day in and day out. And so, and so, yes, when uh, we saw the Space Advisory Board's recommendations, uh, which really echoed some of the recommendations that you might recall that Emerson made when when uh, Emerson made his recommendations to the last government around aerospace and space, when we saw that uh, consistent with with uh, what Emerson had said, the Space Advisory Board also urged government to procure these capabilities as a service. We, uh, we applauded that. So you bring up a good point, which is we've seen this before, at least some of the recommendations. So... What's your sense of how and when the government will act now that it has the Space Advisory Board recommendations? Are, are, you know, the sense that I get in talking to people is that we've done a lot of talking over the years and that it's now time for action. Are we, do you get a sense that that's, that's how this government is going to, to see this? Well, we, we share the view that, that uh, action is required. Tell us that, and, and I know that I think pretty much all of the uh, participants in that uh, space advisory uh, board review process, be they commercial companies, uh, academic institutions, nonprofits, I think we were all united in the view that uh, there is a role for government in connection with uh, space activities and that uh, the 
Canadian space sector is under real pressure right now, real duress, and, and we do need some government action. Uh, this government, I think, is uh, very minded to uh, do things that, that can be helpful. I think the timing of when we're going to see something, uh, our expectation is it will uh, maybe be done in connection with the next budget. Uh, so, I don't know, you tell me somewhere in the February, kind of March, uh, April time frame of, uh, of next year. I think that's what we're looking at. I think that uh, the, um, the minister uh, and, uh, and, and the other folks that I said welcome the recommendations that were made by the Space Advisory Board. And now they're uh, hard at work taking those things and translating uh, those recommendations into uh, into policy. All right, so uh, let's transition over to uh, a new, exciting uh, potential business uh, segment for you, and that's your low Earth orbit, or as we call it, LEO, uh, satellite constellation. You've proposed building a constellation uh, of 117 satellites in LEO. That's quite the departure from the Telesat people have come to know. Why get involved in this LEO satellite constellation market? You know, Mark, um, as far as the departure from the Telesat that, that people have come to know and I, and I hope love, um, I don't think it's a huge departure, and, and, and by that I mean uh, it, it's true. All of our satellites today operate in a geostationary orbit, uh, but, but core to our mission is, uh, is, is innovation, uh, genuinely. I mean, Telesat, uh, and, and, and I'm sure you know this well, many industry firsts, right? We were the first uh, company way back in the early 70s to – uh, launch and, and operate a domestic communication satellite, first company to launch a direct-to-home uh, video satellite, the first company to uh, launch a satellite that used KA band for two-way uh, consumer broadband services. And so, you know, that's, that's why I think Telesat's been successful in the past. We try to keep abreast of what the market is looking for, and then we uh, look at the technology landscape and, and try to figure out what's the uh, best technology that's available to address what we're seeing um, in, in the market in terms of, uh, of demand. And what we're seeing in the market today in terms of what, what we think our customers are looking for, it is, and it should be no surprise, uh, they want our customers, and, and when I say our customers, across almost every vertical that we're participating in, whether it's uh, government services, whether it's serving telcos, ISPs, uh, even broadcasters, governments, uh, what they're looking for is uh, large uh, broadband pipes. They want connectivity uh, back to the internet backbone. They want uh, that uh, very high-speed pipes. Uh, at a very, very low cost per bit, and they want, and this is where Leo is so important, uh, a very low latency service. And when we, you know, reflected on uh, where the market was going in terms of, uh, fr from a demand perspective, and we thought about what what's the 
art of the possible in terms of where technology is today, uh, it led us straight to Leo. And so that's, that's the genesis there. And I am, I think it's exactly the right path for us to be on. I'm very bullish about the growth in demand for broadband services. And I think that this is exactly the kind of satellite architecture that's required in order to uh, meet the uh, uh, really, the burgeoning requirements for those types of services. So, uh, it's my understanding that in the next two months, your first two uh, prototype uh, satellites are scheduled to wa- to launch. One's going to be on a Russian Soyuz, and the other one's going to be on an Indian PSLV rocket. Uh, what can you tell me about the satellites and how close they might resemble to the production model? These satellites. Um uh, we're excited to get these satellites launched. I think we're going to be the uh, of all the sort of new LEO aspirants uh, will be first up in terms of launching. So we procured these satellites, memory serves, well over, Two well years over ago. a year ago now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of them is, is being built uh, uh, by uh, the, the good folks at Surrey. So they're owned by Airbus. Uh, the other one, and, and that's the one that's going to go on the Indian launch vehicle, the PSLV. The other satellite, a uh, bit of a good uh, Canadian story here, uh, it's being uh, built by uh, MDA, uh, the payload at least, uh, uh, in their uh, Palo Alto facility, so by SSL. But the bus is being built uh by the Space Flight Laboratories, uh, part of the uh, University of Toronto, uh, that's the satellite that's going to go up uh, on the Soyuz, and that, that that's the one that's going to go up first. Yeah, that's, so, that's what I saw. So, uh, yeah, so if all goes well, these satellites get launched uh, this year. Uh, they're really so that we can start to do some testing and validation of our broader design concepts. Ultimately, these satellites... Uh, do not have some of the key technologies that uh, are going to find their way into the constellation, and, and, and we can talk about what some of those key technologies are. Uh, but we're going to be able to do a lot with these first two satellites, and we're we're excited to have them launched. So here's a question: Why two different manufacturers, SSL and Surrey? Two different manufacturers. It's really uh, doing what uh, Telesat and and all good satellite operators do. It's all about diversity. Uh, Two different manufacturers, uh, two different launch vehicles. It allows us to uh, get sort of firsthand experience with uh, two uh, potential uh, future vendors. And as I said, it's just a good way to uh, diversify the uh, supply chain. Okay. So uh, you mentioned uh, the Space Flight Lab, and I'm quite uh, curious about that. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I've heard come from Telesat and from you is, is you know, procure Canadian services, you know, almost by Canadian, as it were. Um, if the uh, – when it does come time to actually procure, uh, you know, a large – group of satellites, uh, you know, to manufacture a large group of satellites, would, uh, would the Space Flight Lab be uh, a possibility in that equation uh, to, to at least build the, the bus? 
I, I, I'm not sure. I think ultimately the uh, the the bus that will uh, be required for uh, the, um, the 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 first generation of our Leo constellation it's it, it it'll it'll be a larger bus than than what uh, SFL is providing us here. I certainly think, uh, in connection with our uh, constellation plans, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for uh, the Canadian space sector, including potentially for uh, SFL. Um, so we're you're, you're right. I mean, we are we are very conscious of that. Uh, we um, we have deep deep roots here in Canada. We have a very high regard for the competency. Uh, that exists here in Canada and, and throughout Canadian industry. And so I think that uh, there'll be ample opportunity for uh, a, a whole range of Canadian companies to uh, participate with us uh, in our uh, LEO uh, initiative. I, I just point out for our, my listeners is that while SSL is part of the MDA company, it is in California, so not quite... Uh, manufacturing in Canada, but if some of the work was in Canada, that would be great. Yeah, but you know, uh, uh, they're uh, certainly relying very heavily on their uh, activities in Montreal, particularly for uh, antenna technology, which is going to be really a a key enabler for the LEO satellites. We're envisioning, um, you know, electronically steerable phased array uh, antennas on the satellite, and uh, the uh, MDA folks in Montreal have some interesting technology there. Uh, MDA Canada has spent considerable resources developing a channelizer, a, di- a digital channelizer. That's going to be another key uh, technological feature of our new satellites. We need the, the the flexibility that you get with a digital processing payload. So. Um, I, I, I personally believe that MDA writ large is a stronger company uh, with SSL, uh, and SSL is a stronger company because of the uh, competencies that MDA uh, and, their, and their Canadian presence brings to the, the, the overall equation. Well, you won't get a disagreement from me on that. I, I just wrote an article about that a couple of days ago. Um, so uh, with respect to, um, you know, you've got your two prototype satellites going up. Um, how long are you going to give them in orbit to, to do testing before you make a decision on, uh, in part, uh, on the performance of those? And, and also, obviously, you still need to come up with funding for the to build the further, the larger constellation. What's the time frame or you're looking to make a decision on some of these things? Well, um, I, I, I think the testing is going to be relatively straightforward. There are certainly things that we need to check out and, and, and some design concepts that we need to validate. Um, but we're, we're, we're pretty confident that, that that's going to play out uh, as we anticipate. We are in the process right now of conducting an RFP for the uh, sort of next generation satellites, the satellites that will comprise uh, the constellation that, that that you described, Mark, the roughly 120 or so satellites. We uh, expect that uh, we'll probably down select the two vendors and then work with them for 
know, roughly six to 12 months to do some risk retirement, right? We are, uh, our, our constellation will be very advanced. All of the technologies exist today, but they're being brought together in a fairly novel way. And so there's some risk that, that we're focused on retiring in connection with that. Things like uh, the intersatellite links that we plan to do uh, using uh, in, in, in optical. Um, and so, so the plan is to try to down-select uh, toward the end of this year to two uh, suppliers and then work with them for a period of time in parallel to retire certain key programmatic risks and then to be under contract uh, for the Constellation uh, before the end of 2018 with our objective of being in service uh, towards the end of 2021. So that's the uh, schedule that we've set for ourselves, and um, the response that we've seen from the supplier community has been uh, very encouraging. Uh, again, we have an ambitious plan, and it looks like industry is is collectively rising to the challenge, and so that's that's the uh, the time frame that we're under. So I noticed on your website that uh, you've got quite a few job openings related to the Leo Constellation project. Uh, I just came from Montreal last week, the Montreal Space Symposium, I think it was just over a week ago, uh, where there were a lot of young uh, students, uh, some of them about to graduate in engineering that are looking for jobs. Uh, are you actually having issues finding talent in Canada or you just have that many jobs available? We are uh, staffing up significantly right now. Uh, almost all of that is in furtherance of our LEO initiative. Um, we're making good progress. We're, we're also making good progress, I'm pleased to say, uh, sourcing really highly skilled uh, candidates here in Canada. Um, but we, 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 have, we still have a long ways to go. I think we're, we have something like, I don't know, another... 30 job openings right now, and that's just sort of our our uh, initial wave there. Uh, as we continue to progress our activities with the suppliers, uh, we're going to need more people still as we move through the different phases of this program. So we're making good progress, but um, uh, we're 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 uh, posting positions on our website. We're active. Uh, on LinkedIn, we're uh, hiring a number of recruiters. And so, yeah, finding a lot of those uh, folks here in Canada um, and needing to recruit uh, some from overseas as well. So, okay, so you're going to build out this constellation, but who are your customers going to be? In many ways, our customers are going to be uh, many of the same uh, types of customers that we work with today. Uh, so, you know, Telesat today is providing service uh, pretty much everywhere in the world. Um, we uh, are very focused on uh, the enterprise uh, segment with our Leo Constellation. So think telco, uh, think uh, ISP, government users, uh, the resources market. Uh, it's it's, uh, it's, it's going to serve all of those different verticals. Uh, but again, really, uh, at the end of the day, what we're providing uh, to all those target customers is a 
very high throughput, very low latency, very uh, cost-effective, resilient, secure, diverse broadband solution. And so uh, in many ways, it's going to be doing business with the same customers that we're serving today uh, who are very much looking for that next generation of services. And, um, yeah, that's that's – that that's that's where our focus is going to be. So space is often characterized as congested, contested, and competitive. Your constellation is part of a new paradigm of business that will only add to that. Currently, there are over fourteen hundred active satellites in orbit. Yours and other constellations could add several thousand more. Is there room for all these satellites? Well, we're all going to have to be very, very uh, careful and thoughtful as to how we deploy these constellations and, and then how we operate them uh, and then how we uh, retire certain satellites over time. Um, I don't believe that all the constellations that are being discussed right now are, are ultimately uh, going to um, materialize. I think that uh, some of this we've seen before, some of the operators uh, are, are more serious, I believe, in their in their plans than others. Um, but uh, a number of us will move forward. This uh, absolutely will add to the amount of hardware that's 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 flying in space. And uh, just as I said, we're we're all going to have to be very mindful of 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 how we're operating. And 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 that conversation and and that issue is very much foremost in everyone's minds, the minds of the operators, the minds of the uh, the regulators, uh, the minds of, of the prospective users. So, um, yeah, it's a great question, and it's, uh, it, it's an area of, of real focus. Yeah, and there's no doubt that not all the players will, will be able to move forward with their projects. But there are a couple that, that, that uh, look like they're going to go forward. One of them, obviously, moving forward quite well, it seems, is OneWeb. And they've already received uh, FCC uh, approval. Um, you're still waiting on, on that, I believe. Any idea when, when that might, uh, decision might come down for, for you? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I believe um, it's reasonably imminent. I, I think we should see action uh, by the FCC, uh, certainly by the end of the year. Um, and so we, we, we feel good about uh, where we are in that process. They recently uh, introduced their, or I should say adopted their NGSO uh, order, their NGSO rules. And um and we expect that OneWeb was the first application they granted. Uh, we expect that we and at least one other uh, will uh, also receive action before the end of the year. So I, I think we're well on track there. So moving on to another topic, and that's Canada's new defense policy. Uh, the new defense policy was released in June. Uh, and a lot of people might not remember this, but going back away, there was a project called the Polar Communications and Weather Satellite. Uh, it never made it to procurement. Uh, what we have instead, uh, looks like, is the Enhanced Satellite Communication Project. This looks to be a tailor-made project for Telesat, is it? 
I think I, I think that it, it it could be, and and I I would say this, Mark, um, not just for Telesat, but in some ways I would say more Canadian industry. So so this is a project uh, as you know that that's been out there for a while, or, or at least the set of requirements the um, uh, government of Canada, like some of its allies, is needing a broadband communications infrastructure and a narrowband communications infrastructure for the far north. Geostationary satellites are fantastic for many things, but uh, given the curvature of the earth, they uh, can't serve the poles. And so Canada, uh, the U.S., Norway, uh, countries like that who are, you know, focused on the north and and who are uh, well allied uh, have been looking at, at at filling that communications gap in the far north. So Telesat um, teamed up with uh, other uh, globally leading Canadian space companies, and in, in, in particular, uh, MDA, uh, Comdev. Um, our friends at uh, at Callion or SED and responded together uh, to uh, an RFI that Public Works had issued all the way back in November 2013. And so I think we put together a really compelling technical solution in response to the government's requirements, a really compelling procurement model where we agreed to fund the satellites and enter into a service agreement uh, with the government of Canada for the life of, 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 of what would be two satellites. You need two satellites in a highly elliptical orbit to uh, meet these requirements. So I, I think that um, this Canadian group can deliver uh, a world-class uh, phenomenal solution to meet these requirements. And we're looking forward to the government uh, moving forward with this project. So uh, as part of the, uh, I suppose I'll call it ill-fated now, Polar Communications and Weather Satellite Project, uh, there was a weather payload component. And uh, as everybody knows, reliable weather data for the uh, Arctic, the high north, is is still in a critical need. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on on how to solve that pressing issue? Well, I mean, certainly one way to do it, when we responded to the RFI, uh, at that time, it was still PCW, so Polar Communications and Weather, and we had um, proposed um, a capability, uh, a, a meteorological payload that would fly with the communications payloads on these two satellites and, and would have met those requirements. Um, like you, it's our understanding that that there's no longer uh, an emphasis on that part of the mission. We are told that a new RFI uh, is expected to come out before the end of this year that would sort of be the follow-on for uh, at least the PC of the PCW, the Polar Communications. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what uh, how the government is thinking about the uh, urgency of meeting those meteorological requirements. It's certainly the case that uh, Telesat, working with its partners, had come up with a really great solution to meet those meteorological requirements. Um, But if if those are no longer 
sort of front and center for the government, uh, I, I'm not sure how they'll be met. You know, uh, I'll just uh, explore this for another minute. The, you know, whether um, uh, data for the North is, is something, like I said, is, is, is still needed. And as we've seen recently with the, the, the hurricanes to the South, uh, you know, a lot of the weather data that came in was, was critical. Um, Canada doesn't have any weather satellites. I mean, we're, we we share that capability by uh, with the U.S. primarily. Uh, is it isn't it about time that Canada did some work in this area and 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 at least put up a one or two uh, weather satellites of our own? You know, it, um, I'll take a step back at at the time uh, when PCW was still under consideration. The the focus uh, seemed to be not only to um, uh, have this meteorological capability to to focus on the north, but it was part of a larger global effort. The the same meteorological instrument that was going to um, monitor the uh, weather conditions in the north. Uh, it was going to be the same kind of instrument that uh, NOAA in the U.S. and and others were flying uh, in a geostationary orbit. And the goal of Canada and its allies was uh, was to have the same instrument with this polar capability that, when you stitched it together uh, with the geo capabilities, would allow. Uh, uh, meteorologists worldwide to develop more of a global weather model. So so it was very much seen not only kind of in isolation to cover the north, but in this broader global context to, to, to develop a global weather model. Uh, you know, whether whether it's long overdue for Canada to step up uh, and and uh, you know launch one or more meteorological payloads. In, in all candor, um, I'm not sure. The reality is there are a lot of uh, key priorities uh, for space. Uh, weather might be one. Certainly, communications will be another. The government has not unlimited resources, and it needs to make judgments about where its priorities are. Um, while while meteorological requirements are certainly important, um, you know, it, it might be the case that uh, there are even more pressing priorities, and and it, and it looks like uh, communications, uh, particularly in the far north, might be even more pressing at this time. That that's what appeared to fall out of the defense policy review and the. Uh, what, what sort of showed up in the strong, secure, engaged report that ultimately provides the blueprint for uh, D&D procurement for uh, the foreseeable future. So speaking of communications uh, and, and in the far north, uh, next year you're going to launch the Telstar 18 Vantage and the Telstar 19 Vantage satellites. Telstar 18 Vantage will service China, Mongolia, Southeast Asia, and the Pacific Ocean region, while Telstar 19 Vantage will service the Americas and importantly, Northern Canada. Um, I just have a couple questions on that. You're under contract to SpaceX for the launch of both these satellites. Have they approached you and have you considered using a previously flown Falcon 9 first stage to save costs? Does that option appeal to you? You know, uh, SpaceX is an amazing company, and and they have uh, uh, demonstrated their ability not only to recover the first stage of their rocket, which is an incredible thing to to watch and an incredible engineering feat, 
Um, but they've also demonstrated that that they can uh, reuse that that first stage. Um, we've had conversations with them about the opportunities to uh, make use of a previously flown first stage. At, at this point in time, uh, that's not the plan for either 19V or 18V. At this point in time, uh, both of those are scheduled to fly on uh, kind of you know first use rockets. Um, I wouldn't foreclose uh, the possibility that that we could be persuaded to switch, but uh, to date, um, the focus is uh, that that really hasn't been the focus so far. We're, we're 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 and I should say we're very focused on schedule. Uh, you know, it's our our expectation that we'll be launching these satellites. You know, sort of mid next year, and we're very keen to get uh, both of them in orbit and just are providing service. Well, they seem to be uh, an uptick in their launch cadence, so that uh, works in, in, in your favor. Um, the new Telstar 19 Vantage is in part going to service uh, northern Canada, uh, and one of the things that you're going to be able to do with it is uh, provide a better broadband uh, to, to the north. Will that mean uh, lower costs for broadband? For the residents it there, should be, yeah. The the short answer is yes. Uh, it, what what Telstar 19 Vantage uh, will do as far as northern communications, it's going to be transformative. Uh, we are bringing multiple and multiple uh, times uh, the amount of capacity to the north than exists today. Um, it, it it will it will be transformative. And it should be uh, at price points that are meaningfully lower uh, than than what uh, northerners, uh, individuals, and businesses and governments are paying today. Well, as somebody who spent some time in the north working on some research projects where bandwidth was limited, it's uh, good to hear. Um, uh, and how fast will that uh, high-speed broadband be? I mean, how, how do we compare that to, let's say, if you're at home in Ottawa? Well, I think you know that you'll have to talk to the service providers. It's there. There are two of them who are going to be making use of Telstar 19 Vantage. Uh, one of them is SSI Micro, uh, and another one is Northwest Tel, or you know, sort of leading service providers in the far north. I can tell you that for uh, Ikaluit alone, uh, we'll be bringing in a link that's over uh, three gigabits of capacity. So a huge amount of capacity. It's, uh, again, multiples and multiples uh, above what's uh, being provided there today. We'll see how fast it gets used. <laughs> I um, think it's going to get taken up very, very quickly. And, and, and traditionally, we've been providing uh, our services to the north, uh, the, the telecom services, uh, using C-band. Uh, this will be KA-band, uh, very uh, focused, uh, high-throughput, uh, well-tailored KA-band beams serving the communities up there. It, it's really an exciting development. Now, you also recently announced with Bell uh, a 15-year agreement for most of the capacity uh, for the Telstar 19V. Um, how are things shaping up in, in selling the remaining capacity to the other areas the satellite will serve? It's it's going quite well. Um, so as you mentioned, uh, Bell is taking uh, the lion's share of the uh, K-band capacity in the far north. SSI is taking the balance of that. 
we have already pre-sold all of the KA band capacity that will serve Latin America. Uh, also for the life of the satellite to another longstanding customer of ours, uh, Hughes. Um, and then in addition to KA band capacity, there will be KU band capacity as well. This new satellite, Telstar 19 Vantage, is actually being co-located with another satellite of ours called Telstar 14R, which is a KU band satellite, and we're pretty much at capacity on that satellite right now. So we needed to expand the capacity that we had at that orbital slot, and and that's what Telstar 19 Vantage does. So uh, we're we're really making good progress there. I'm pleased with it. Uh, okay, well, uh, I'd like to thank uh, Dan for being a guest on uh, the Space Cube podcast. Uh, uh, I hope you'll uh, consider being a guest on a future show. Mark, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. I would welcome the opportunity to speak with you in the future, and I applaud the excellent work that you do uh, making uh, everyone, people that care about space and people uh, who are just sort of more generally interested in it, uh, helping them understand what's happening in in our sector right now. So thank you. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Q Podcast. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. You can also find Space Q on Twitter at Canada in Space and we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook at the Space Q. And don't forget to like us on Facebook. I'm also on LinkedIn at Mark K. Boucher. And if we're connected, you'll get Space Q articles and the podcast notification in your newsfeed. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider rating the show and writing a review if you're so inclined.